Welcome to the Grow Bold with Disability podcast, brought to you by Ferros Care, a podcast dedicated to smashing stereotypes and talking about the things people with disability care about most, to help us live bolder, healthier, better connected lives. I'm journalist Pete Timms. And I'm Tristan Peters. I work for Disability Service Directory Clickability and am a wheelchair user living with spinal muscular atrophy. Today's episode of Grow Bold with Disability is Growing Bold with Art. And our guest is Priscilla Sutton. Now, Priscilla was born with heart, lung, and vascular complications and missing the fibula bone in her right leg, which along with a foot, never really developed. That was attributed to the major component of Agent Orange. In this episode, we're going to discover how Agent Orange or the chemicals that were part of it affected her as a child, how a decision that Priscilla made at 26 years old changed her life and brought together a bunch of artists and spare parts that have since travelled the world. Priscilla, welcome to Grow Bowl with Disability. Thank you very much. What a great introduction. (laughs) You make me sound much more exciting. (laughs) Oh, not at all. Not at all. Um, So, Priscilla, can you tell us uh, a little bit about some of the chemicals that are associated with Agent Orange and uh, what effect did they have on an unborn baby? That's a really great question and I wish that I had listened more in science um, at school to be able to answer that. Um, but uh, what I can tell you is um, that Agent Orange was, uh, has two main components, so 245T, which is the component that was used in the area that I was um, conceived and born in. Um, and there's another one called 24, sorry, 2DT, I think it is 2DT, something like that. Um, I'm sure science people will write in and correct me. Um, and it was also <laughs> used in Australia. So 245T was a herbicide. The other one was a pesticide um, and used in various farming areas. Um, And the one that I was exposed to was common, I think, Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia, quite dry areas, Um, a lot of cotton farming, that sort of thing. Uh, And we all know about the history books and what they've said about Agent Orange and the effect on um, people and unborn children and also generations of people born since the Vietnam War. Um, But in my case, um, there was a cluster of babies Um, leukemia I think was a bit common and um, uh, I was always considered pretty lucky one of the luckier kids in that cluster and so with heart vascular and bone conditions and um, and I know that uh, adhesions um, especially in your abdomen are another um, large side effect that a lot of people have experienced. I've read about different people's experiences online um, and I've certainly had adhesions removed from my abdomen through surgery as well. So, and I'm really great at growing adhesions and scar tissue. It's one of my um, <laughs> best skills, which is really difficult when they grow in an artery and block it. So, but I do like to look at the positive that I'm very good at it. Um, it's just really <laughs> complicated. So, yeah, so I guess that kind of sums it up. So there are, um, the effects can be, can be quite wide, but um, heart, bone, vascular um, adhesions, cancer are all really well-documented side effects of being exposed to something like Agent Orange. So what did all these side effects mean to you growing up? Well, I guess, do you know, I really didn't know the cause of my disability until I was in my early 20s. 
And this is a funny conversation that I've had with my mum because I say, I don't know what you're talking about, mum. You never told me this as a kid. And she was like, yeah, we did. And I said, no, it was always like maybe someone had a virus or something, you know. And I said it was all quite vague and it was only in my 20s when she met an advocate for Agent Orange victims that she started sharing information with me and it was quite a revelation. Um, But being born with all of this and I was in uh, central Queensland, so I was um, born in a lovely little town called Biloela. So it's quite a small community with not a lot of medical care. So we moved to Mackay, which was considered the big smoke, um, and they had a base hospital and a few things. So, And even Mackay was pretty small. So every year of my childhood, um, we would have to catch the bus to Brisbane um, to go to various medical appointments uh, multiple times a year. So a lot of my childhood, I remember surgeries and greyhound buses, which were appalling in the 80s and everyone could smoke on them, which I think ironically was not a good thing for somebody with heart and vascular complications <laughs> to be on, you know, like a 14-hour bus trip with like 80 grannies smoking their cigarettes. But that's that's what happened in the 80s. So... Oh, that would have been a sight to see. Um, and so you also... It really was. It was disgusting. <laughs> I bet. I bet. And so you're also in um, quite a lot of pain when you were walking growing up. Is that correct? Yeah. And it's it's hard to describe. So with my right leg, um, and it's interesting you said fibula because I know that's actually in, in my bio, but I need to update it because literally in the last few weeks... I discovered I do have a bit of a fibula and uh, oh. <laughs> which me and other people didn't know about. And it's um, because I've experienced some recent pain and we've been having x-rays and MRIs to work it out. And everyone's like, what's this bone? Because it's like a fibula, but it's not where a fibula should be. So we're calling it a fibula, but, you know, maybe a bone person might have a better name for it. So I'm not sure what to call it yet, but one day I'll update that bio. But my foot itself was... Um, born if you put your palm out with um like palm facing down you put your hand out sorry palm facing down um and then you tip your fingers to the ceiling that's how my foot was born so it was tipped upwards they broke it to point down um not completely to the floor but just tilted so um and my ankle was about two and a half inches different to the toe height so it was on a bit of a tilt and that meant I had to wear built-up shoes and then eventually orthopedic shoes when I was about 11 um, and for the sake of it I really wasn't born with a fibula my leg was very thin even though there is a random bone in there now um, but and I can I have a small hand and if I put my middle finger and my thumb together um, that's about how um, thick my leg was so it was very very thin um and underneath my toes a lot of the pain that I had was that when they tilted my foot broke it and tilted it they fused that ankle and under the toes if you join your fists together uh, or join your hand together into a fist I'm not very good at describing things today am I um into a fist (laughs) and your knuckles become pointy um that pointy feeling is what it was like under my the top of my foot so under the ball of my foot so it was like walking on pointy knuckles and so I always describe the pain I had as bone pain which as opposed to muscular pain 
where when you've got muscular pain, you could do things like massage or rest or, um, you know, hot packs or whatever, all sorts of different things. When it's bone pain, it's very consuming and it can very much stop you in your tracks. And so for me, there was a bit of muscular pain because my leg wasn't very well developed, but primarily the pain I had associated with this was bone pain. And it was, um, when it came on, I used to describe that was it for the day. I'd have to get to a taxi and get home because I couldn't walk much further. But at the age of 26, you decided to do something about this pain, didn't you? I did. So ever since I was little and I was on the the smoker's bus, the smoker's greyhound to (laughs) Makata Brisbane um, and going to all these orthopaedic appointments and and I had this same doctor most of my childhood and a lot of people might relate to this. He had no bedside manner and he would just say stuff so dry and blasé that would traumatise me and my mum and – and he was one of many doctors actually who had um, said since I was little that my leg should be amputated. And my mum had always said no, that that would be my choice if and when I chose to do that. So it was when I was 26 and I was living in Tokyo. I was having this amazing life in my 20s, living overseas in this crazy country. And if anyone listening has been to Tokyo um, Tokyo is all about walking, 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 and then walking some more and then doing some stairs. Everything good is upstairs (laughs) and everything that you want to go to is a couple of Ks between. So my my pain got worse, worse and worse and worse, Um, immense physical pain. And I realized that I was having this great life, but my foot was starting to stop me I was having barriers you know suddenly appear before me literally and and metaphorically like I was I just couldn't do the things I wanted to do and and I used to live a pretty easy walk home from the train station like it was a long walk and in retrospect there was probably a train that was closer to my house but I never found it (laughs) and uh and I was walking home it was like flat surface really good footpaths and shouldn't have been an issue. And I was walking home one night and I remember just standing there in absolute agony, crying, wishing that a taxi would drive past. And I remember the street light was like this dull lamp and I just stood there crying and I had that moment, Oprah calls it an aha moment, where you just go, oh, okay, I have to change my life because all of these things were happening and my foot was starting to turn a little bit as well, turn under. And I thought, I can't have this because if I'm going to end up as a wheelchair user anyway, maybe I should chop it off and start again. And then if that doesn't work out and I use a wheelchair, that's okay. But I'm going to try, try my best. So I was 20, I was probably 24 actually when I decided. And then I moved back to Australia eventually and started to go through the process of finding a new doctor because you don't just walk in and go chop it off boys I'm ready you know um, it's a whole process so I think it took almost two years from that oh I don't know if you heard that but there's some drama on the street and lots of horns um, but yeah so it took uh, it took probably two years from that decision to the age of 26 when I finally had it amputated my dear old leg and so tell us how you dealt with that amputation. Tell us about the conversation you had with your leg. Yeah, so I mean, I'm I'm a pretty optimistic person 
and um and you know I try my best to be really positive and do all the things you're supposed to do and um I was being very organized about everything I'd signed the paperwork I was on the wait list all of those things and then once I got the um the letter from the hospital to confirm my surgery date and I had a few weeks notice it kind of hit me and I started to get really anxious and I was constantly um stressed and I couldn't sleep and all of these things are happening so I went off to a psychologist pretty quick and it was somebody who specialized in relaxation um, techniques which is what I really needed because I was so anxious and you know because you have to remember you're chopping off a leg you know it's not going to grow back like a bad haircut that will grow out and I was kind of (laughs) not doubting myself but just you know, shitting myself basically, like, what am I doing? This is crazy. So anyway, so she was amazing, this psychologist, you know, and I talked about all of my fears and all of these things and we did this relaxation exercise and she was really into um, hypnotherapy too and I'm a bit sceptical but I'm pretty sure I went under this day and it was called, um, you know, talking to your body, listening to your body and basically she hypnotized me and we had this whole conversation with my body where my leg told me that she was so upset with me that I had decided to basically chop her off and throw her away and that we had achieved so much together that why would I do that to her? Why would I get rid of her? And I was absolutely bawling and when I kind of came to Like I'd been sitting back on this couch with a cushion. I was soaked. The cushion was soaked. And I remember the whole conversation, but I don't really remember saying it. So it was a really amazing, crazy experience. And I know people think I'm a bit loopy when I talk about it, but it really changed my approach. And I was still anxious and there was a lot of work to do. But what I did decide was to go back to my surgeon And he had said, you know, any issues, any questions, make an appointment, come and see me. So I did that. And I went in there one day and he's like, have you changed your mind? I said, no, but I have made another decision. And I said, I've decided I want to cremate my leg. Fair enough. And that was because of that conversation. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That wasn't all smooth sailing though, was it? Getting it cremated. No. And and again, you know, because you, you can't walk in and say chop it off. You can't walk in and say I'm taking it home. There's so many annoying <laughs> legislations, you know, all these health regulations <laughs> in the way. So because sometimes people go, oh, did you get to take your leg? And I did, but not in a jar. You know, it's there's, there's laws. So because for me, that conversation leading to my decision to cremate was about you know, actually, I don't want my leg to be thrown out with the medical waste of the day. Mm. I love my leg. I respect her. She is a part of me and I want to make sure that she's resting in peace. And I also did have this weird idea that maybe because it was a really cool-looking weird foot, what if someone did take it and put it in a jar and I never knew? That would upset me so much. So... So when I went in, he was like, well, I don't know if we can do this. It sounds interesting. And I explained the whole thing and it's a form of closure to help with my anxiety that I'm feeling about throwing away this amazing part of my body that's got me to where I am today. 
um, and has helped shape my personality too. My, my whole leg has. So the first thing my doctor did was ring the lawyers, right? Because that's, that's the first question in any bureaucrat's mind is I better get legal advice. And he rang the lawyer in the hospital or the legal clinic and sorry, um, uh, legal office, I should say, the council, and rang them and said, uh, so, you know, I've got this young woman, she's having her leg amputated soon, and he put it on speakerphone so I could hear the advice, and she's decided she'd like to cremate it, but are we allowed to do that? Is that possible? And the lawyer just said, what is she, effing nuts? And it was so funny because we all burst out laughing, and my doctor goes, no and by the way you're on speakerphone and she's here and it was so funny because the lawyer just was like oh my god she's gonna sue me um but it was funny because I have a sense of humor and and it kind of brought some lightheartedness to this really complicated situation and and I was allowed to cremate my leg but there was some rules and this was Queensland Health who I subsequently worked for for many years and I love to bag them out for this because they're so bureaucratic. Um, so I was allowed to do it but the funeral home had to collect my amputated limb within an hour of surgery. Um, otherwise, it would have to be transferred to the morgue and I would be charged more fees which would be thousands of dollars. <laughs> And I was like, this doesn't even make sense. Can't you just leave it in a bucket under the table till they get there? But, yeah. you know, you can't because laws, regulations, health department, all this sort of stuff. Um, and I guess, you know, I was like, okay, cool. Let's see if this is possible. And, and that's how that process started, which was pretty fun. But then you rang around all these, all these funeral homes and they didn't know what to do either, did they? No, they didn't at all. It was I literally got out the yellow pages because this is a few years ago now. It's um, 14 and a half years ago. So yellow pages was still a thing. I think it still is, but no one uses them except prosthetic clinics, I've got to say. That's the main use <laughs> which we can get into later. But uh, so I opened it up and I was like, well, they say they're a crematorium. So I'd never organised a funeral before, thank gosh. And so I rang them up and said, oh, you know, g'day, my name's Priscilla and... I'm having my leg amputated soon. I'm just, and I, I'd like to cremate it. I'm just wondering how much that would cost. And I think they thought it was a prank <laughs> call and, you know, um, and there was a really great prank call show on at the time, like a Comedy Central one about puppets doing prank calls and it was really yeah, popular. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, yeah. they probably thought it was something like that. And, um, and I said, no, no, this is for real. And they said, oh, okay. So trying to take me really seriously. And I'm laughing because of who I am and I think it's funny. And they said, well, we've never had this request before. What? We don't know how much this would cost. And I said, well, I don't know. This is your specialty. And I said, I guess, do you go by size? Because it's no bigger than a cat. And she laughed. And <laughs> basically in the end we settled for the price of a cat, which was a few hundred bucks. And they were so kind. They were so absolutely kind. I did have to go in and sign paperwork and take surgical paperwork to prove that this wasn't a prank. And the I still have this paperwork and, you know, the it's got deceased person's name and I'm scrubbing it out, writing leg of Priscilla and all of this and, um, <laughs> and laughing. And my friend was with me for moral support and, we were honestly the two happiest people ever in a funeral home. It was a bit disturbing. And they were so lovely on the day. 
um, a nurse called them for me and then my mum was the backup call. They got there within the hour, saved me those morgue fees and uh, cremated my leg. And a few weeks after I got out of hospital, I went back and collected my ashes and I still have them to this day. So um, I highly <laughs> recommend it to anybody going through like an elective amputation because it is a it, as funny as it all is, it actually meant so much to me emotionally to know what happened to my leg and that she is still with me. Um, it just means a lot because your body, especially when you're in such chronic pain, as much as your body might drive you crazy, you also love your body so much because it has actually got you through every bad day so far. And even though today might feel like the worst day, your body is so strong and actually just wants to do the best thing for you. And it's really hard to throw that in the bin. Absolutely. It's such a meaningful and creative way to get closure, as you said. Um, and it's your next creative endeavors that I'd love to ask about next. Um, when in 2010, while working at Queensland Health, you stumbled upon another great idea. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I, I actually worked in music for a really long time and and then I realised I was uh, just really poor and had no superannuation and just a cupboard <laughs> full of band shirts and I decided that's when I went to work for Queensland Health and um, become a bureaucrat myself and um, and it, it absolutely stifled my creativity and I really missed working in the arts but I was really enjoying the income. So I decided I needed a side hustle. I needed a creative project. And the thought of doing anything in music made me throw up a little bit. So I was like, I need something else. What, what's another art form? It, this is literally my thinking process. And, and then one day I was cleaning out my cupboard at home and, you know, I was only um, five years down the track or four years really at this point um, of being an amputee and yet I still had a couple of legs in the cupboard because as your activity levels increase, you get better feet and as your stump shrinks through um, muscle wastage and um, swelling and all of that sort of stuff, you get more sockets, the bit that your stump goes into. So, you know, I basically had legs in the cupboard that I didn't know what to do with and then I thought I'm getting to be a bit weird I'm a leg hoarder because I (laughs) cremated the other one and now I've got these in the cupboard and I didn't want to throw these out either because they meant something to me so I thought I wonder if because I've got all these amazing creative friends I wonder if one of my creative artistic friends could do something with them you know, use them as a canvas and then I could hang them on the wall because that's art, that's not hoarding. And, you know, I had all these ideas <laughs> and then the idea kind of grew and I was at this exhibition with some friends and just chatting and I'm, I had been mentoring a couple of people um, on event management. They were doing exhibitions and even though I'd come from music, I knew the basics of event management. And I sort of was looking at them going, you know, I could do what they do. Like I don't really know much about art, but I could give that a go. And uh, object exhibitions were really um, big at the time, like vinyl toys, skateboard decks, where everybody got the same object Mm. and used it as their canvas. And I thought, I wonder if I, you know, I've got just a couple of legs in a few years. There must be heaps of people like me hoarding these. <laughs> Turns out there are, and we all hoard limbs. <laughs> and, um, and I 
I did a limb drive, I called it. I so I put this call out and uh, I used to see amputees in the street and be like, hey, mate, you got a spare? And they did. And I'd go to their house and pick it up. It was, I made so many friends through this. And, um, and so, and the powerhouse in Brisbane, a beautiful space. Um, it's a, like a multi um, purpose art space, uh, took a chance on me through reputation of working in music and mentoring these other people through really successful exhibitions. Um, yeah, basically took a chance and said, cool, I don't know what this is going to look like, but it sounds wild. Let's give it a go. And the amazing curator there, um, Jody at the time mentored me through the process and, Spare Parts was born and it's such a silly name and it's perfect for it because it is literally Spare Parts. Um, <laughs> and and it, I thought I'd be this crazy leg lady and no one would come and it turned out to be really popular, um, not just for the general public who were really interested in prosthetics and kind of got to have a stare without being in trouble for the first time, which I thought was great. <laughs> um, artists really loved it because it was so artistically challenging for a lot of people um, and a lot of the artists got emotionally involved with the stories of the donors, of where the limbs came from, which um, was actually really heartwarming. Um, and But amputees and prosthetic wearers just uh, felt so represented for the first time um, in media and in art and just in general. And and I sort of never expected this because I just really hated my job and wanted to do something fun to keep, you know, the blood pumping and my heart kind of alive. Um, and then suddenly I created this really open and positive conversation about amputee and prosthetic life that I never intended or expected. So... Yes, Spare Parts has been amazing. And then I, you know, had the opportunity to take, well, to host a second exhibition in London during the 2012 Paralympics, um, which was insane and difficult and rewarding and expensive and life-changing and all of the things you could imagine. Um, And an experience that completely shaped my future. It helped all of these exhibitions helped me change my career back into the arts and I started working in museums, which was great, um, and just opened my world up. And I, I met so many more people just like me and it completely changed my life in so many ways. Well, it's been an absolutely amazing success, this whole thing, just born from this great little idea. Now, Priscilla, in this podcast, as you know, it's called Grow Bowl with Disabilities. We like to finish the podcast up with the question of you telling us what living bold means to you. Oh, it's a great question, living bold. Um, so it was when I started doing spare parts that I, was, I met this young girl who was five at the time, and she's a teenager now, God help me. I feel very old when I, <laughs> when I see her birthday photos on Facebook. Um, but she was five years old, little Zoe, and she inspired me at the age of five to have colourful limbs because back in the day it was a lot of blokes had Iron Maiden legs and kids had Dora the Explorer legs <laughs> and women had really boring legs and we were encouraged to blend in. And part of me loved that because I never blended in before. But then I realized that actually standing out 
is wonderful. And now since that time, so 10 years, I've had really colourful limbs. I get artwork from artists. I buy fabric from fabric shops, whatever it looks like. And being bold to me is allowing yourself to shine. Don't hide your differences. Um, wear them proudly and own them because being different is actually such an exciting commodity in this very changing times where we could all hide behind computers or robots. We could all be exactly the same. But if you can just be that little bit different, you're going to stand out, you're going to have influence, you'll be remembered. And if you can be proud about your body and bold about your body, you might just inspire somebody like Zoe did to me to feel more proud about their body and their differences because there's no reason why we shouldn't be proud, that we shouldn't be bold, that we shouldn't shine. Um, it's 2020 and I just think, you know, be bold, be proud and shine. Perfect. Amazing. That's exactly the sort of lovely little grow bold <laughs> analogies that we like to have. Now, Priscilla, thank you so much for joining us here on the Grow Bold with Disability. And any of our listeners can find out more about Priscilla and also the Spare Part Exhibition in the links provided in today's episode show notes. Priscilla, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. It's been lovely chatting and I hope lots of people enjoy my crazy stories and get to enjoy the artwork online as well. <laughs> thanks, Priscilla. Thank you for listening. And if you have enjoyed today's episode, then make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Grow Bold with Disability. And if you like what you heard, then please take a few moments to pop over to iTunes and give our podcast a quick rating so we can continue these conversations and encourage people to grow bold. This podcast is brought to you by Ferros Care, a people care organisation committed to helping people live bolder lives. We call it Growing Boldly, and for over 25 years, Ferris has been making it real for both older Australians and those living with disability. To find out more, head to ferriscare.com.au.